Welcome to another podcast from South Mims U here in sunny Hertfordshire. Only it's not sunny, but we like to have a sunny disposition in the psychology department, which is where we are sitting right now. If you're a subscriber, you'll know that we're waiting for our shiny new campus to be built. Well, we're waiting for planning permission to be granted. And and so we're making the most of the extensive facilities here in South Mims. Today we're using the storeroom of the Valare Café, with the kind permission of its owner, Raffaella, who makes the best cappuccino this side of Potter's Bar and the other side of St Albans. Her cortado is magnificent and her espressos are deadly. There, we have a sponsor. Now, in this podcast we're going to talk about the psychology of self-help books. It's a huge global industry which generates hundreds of millions of sales for a broad range of books. With me to talk about this phenomenon and some surprising and groundbreaking research that's been done here at South Mims is Bing Benson, our Head of Psychology. Bing, welcome. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. The smell of coffee is very stimulating. It's, it's good for the brain, isn't it? Very. People used to think coffee was bad. In large amounts it is, of course, but but it's very good for thinking (coughs) and doing. The two go together, usually. Now, Bing, I know that the results of your research are causing quite a stir across a number of disciplines, from psychology to organisational science to, well, animal behaviour studies. You never know what you're going to find when you start researching something. I like that, the surprises, the insights you've never expected. And this project, well, it's very close to your heart, isn't it? It's quite personal. It it is. All all my projects are, actually. But this one, there's a history here, a personal history. I, I really don't think that's relevant to this podcast. But it is. I think it is. Uh, didn't we agree? Well, the listeners will know the name. I don't think my father is relevant to this. Well, this is about psychology, and and your motivation for starting this research project is rooted in your own psychology, your own experience, your deep experience. Look, my father is not relevant. But he is Lex Benson, author of Jump Out of Bed, the self-help book that sold in its millions back in the 1980s. That's true, isn't it, Bing? Yes, but I think we agreed not to dwell on that. Well, academic rigour demands it. I mean, full disclosure, uh, Bing, I I think it's relevant. Okay, sure, fine. That's the deal. Well, it it is the deal. It's why you chose to undertake the specific subject, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay. My father was Lex Benson. Was? He, He died two years ago, aged 94. And does the book continue to sell? Not really. It's what they called a one-hit wonder. But a hit that made a fortune, isn't that right? Yes, it made a lot of money. And spawned a global network of of jump-out-of-bed clubs. And that's right too, isn't it? Uh, Sure, that happened. They lasted a few years. Uh, There's still a few left. In fact, there's a woman in Tring who keeps the faith. What made your father's book so compelling, at least for that short while? Well, it was a typical approach for a self-help book. Let's be clear, Bing. Your interest in self-help literature is based on the fact that you believe the whole genre to be, uh, to put it frankly, a fraud. Isn't that right? 
Well, I started out with that belief, yes. And you've confirmed it? No, no it's, it's not as simple as that. Uh, this is a serious project. Well, I don't doubt it being. But your antipathy to your father's work, and to your father as an individual, fired your interest in the subject. You're falling into the trap of pop psychology, if you don't mind me saying. Oh, I don't mind you saying it, Bing. I really don't mind. Look, it, it's well known that my father was a shooting star in the 80s. He was on TV all the time. He was interviewed by Parkinson, Wogan, Paxman, Frost, Brokaw, all the talk show greats around the world. And his simple message resonated at a time when people were looking for answers to a simple question. How can I mean something in a society that only values winners? How can I become rich and maybe famous? How can I get what I want in terms of material goods? How can I be secure? But there was another side to all the positivity. It was a fear, a terrible fear, of being left behind, of being poor, looked down upon by a society that only valued obvious and conspicuous success. My father stoked that. He bought into it. He became a champion of something I know he did not really believe. And why did he do it? Because he was afraid of being a failure. In fact, until he wrote that book, he was a failure. Most everything he'd done until that moment was either a complete failure or a mediocre success that never yielded the returns he thought he deserved. What's the central idea of Jump Out of Bed? Look, look, my work has gone way beyond that. No, but I think it's important because your work stems from it. It's inspired by it, which means your results are so much more powerful. It's based on heartfelt experience. Do you see what I mean, Bing? OK, OK. One day, my father was lying in bed. It was late, almost noon. The previous day he'd been fired from a job as a copywriter at an ad agency. He'd only taken the job as a last resort. We were broke. He was feeling sorry for himself. He did not want to go down and pick the mail off the doormat. He knew there'd be bills, bills he could not pay. My mother was at the end of her tether with us kids and the whole financial situation of the family and with him, particularly him. He was, well, a flawed character. He was manic. He was arrogant. He could be sweet one moment, then nasty the next. He never made the right decision about anything. If my mother, who really had her head screwed on right when it came to thinking things through, suggested solutions or strategies, he'd always dismiss them, and usually then do the opposite, with disastrous effects. Which, which affected you a lot, didn't it? It wasn't nice being a kid around that kind of conflict and stress. Sure, yeah, it affected me a lot. And this is where the story comes together, isn't it? It is. My dad had been given a self-help book by a friend, and he hated it. He said it was drivel. He said it was claptrap. Any Bond could write a book like that and make a million. He tossed the book into the bin. That was the night before. The night before this epic lion he was doing. And my mother lost her temper and she ran into the room and shouted, Jump out of bed and start your fucking life over again, you fucking selfish bastard. OK, and then? And I said, I bet if you wrote a book with a title like that, you'd sell a million, Dad. And the light bulb sparked into life above his head. Uh, well, not above his, but my mum's. 
She told him she'd leave him and not take the kids if he didn't sit down and write his own crappy claptrap self-help book with that title and sell a million copies of it. And? We were all quiet for a while. My dad looked at me and then at her and said, so you wouldn't take the kids? And she said she wouldn't, but she winked at me. He didn't want to be stuck with us. He never really liked being a father. He smiled and then, well... Jumped out of bed. Yes, he jumped out of bed, went to his desk and started writing. And it was claptrap. Total claptrap. He made up every principle, every recommendation. It was a simple idea. If you teach yourself to physically jump out of bed each morning and then mentally do the same thing every time you were in a meeting you didn't want to be in or facing a task that was really difficult, you just had to harness the willpower and physical and mental strength it takes to greet a new day and a new challenge with a roar of hope and morning glory. I'm quoting it now. I remember it well. It worked. It did sell a million copies. Fourteen million. But despite its success... He wasn't happy. He knew he'd never be able to repeat the feat. Jumping out of bed worked once and it would never work again. He knew that. It was luck. He also felt like he was a fraud. He didn't believe his own principles. Surely that's not unusual I mean, among people who write that kind of thing, I mean. Well, no. You'd be surprised. People really do believe what they write. The best ones do, anyway. My dad was lucky, but of course the luck ran out. It was a five-year thing, then it faded pretty quickly. Is it, is it still in print? No. You see it in second-hand bookstores every now and then, charity shops, goodwill, car boot sales. And I saw one going for free at one of those book exchange cafes the other day. <laughs> Did you take it? No. So, now we've established why you're so interested in self-help books, perhaps we can move on to your research. What I'm interested in is not the literature itself, how it's written or why it's written, even why people buy it. I think that is actually quite obvious. I'm sure some listeners would like to know the formula so they can write their own. (laughs) A cursory read of one or two titles would tell you all you need to know. My interest is in how reading the books affects people's mood. Or at least that was what sparked my research. So your research isn't about the effects on the readers? No, it's about a very surprising indirect effect, like you said at the start. It has broader implications that are beyond the human. OK, explain. OK, it's best to start with research that shows quite consistently that self-help books don't have the effect they claim to have. You mean... They aren't any help at all. Well, I wouldn't be as draconian as that. You will always find people who say that reading a self-help book has transformed their lives, that the advice made them do things differently and that in turn has led to some success. There will always be those stories. But there are exceptions which prove the rule. Exactly. In my opinion, anyway. The overall picture is that reading self-help books can actually lead you to do less and be more anxious or even depressed. Well, just by reading something that tries to make you more optimistic, you become more anxious. Well, that seems to be what's happening. You see, the books we're talking about come in two forms, problem-focused and growth-orientated. Right, OK. So a book that stresses all the problems you face, or that 
people in general face and the ones that tell you that you must change what you're doing to achieve growth. Yes, yes, basically that's right. You read about how everything is bad, it's hard, the odds are against you and that there are people out there who have an advantage that you don't have. You get anxious, even more anxious. Researchers recently measured the cortisol levels, that's a stress hormone, in people who read these books and showed that they were raised for a considerable amount of time after they had finished reading. But the books were also about how you can overcome that disadvantage, right? Well, of course. They set out the problems so you could then be motivated to overcome them. But the stress induced by the problem actually led to lethargy or a feeling that the cards were inevitably and irrevocably stacked against you. What happened when they read the more positive stuff? The same thing. The self-help part, all those ten steps to success, three principles of growth or five magic secrets, you know the kind of thing. <laughs> Seven jumps to hope, as in your father's book. Mm, oh yes, yes, OK, that too. Uh, you really shouldn't be so defensive about your dad's book, you know. Can we stick to the point, please? Yeah, OK, sorry, yeah. The cortisol levels rose and stayed high even after the growth-orientated sections of a book or books solely focused on that kind of approach. We wondered why. It's maybe because people didn't feel as if they were able to meet the demands of the writer's formula, or they knew they wouldn't keep up the five points or seven steps or always focus on the miracle in front of them. <laughs> or jump out of bed. Or jump out of bed, right. You're not going to let that go, are you? Uh, no, I will, I will, promise. Then I wondered how you could convince people not to read the books so that they could be calmer and, in truth, better able to help themselves. Well, just don't buy the book. It's not that simple. Many people are addicted to self-help books, even though they never help themselves. They're in a rut of both anxiety and a need to believe that they will change their lives. They just need a little bit more advice. Just one more set of ten principles. Get one more monkey off their back or their shoulder. Or, or pray to one more obscure angel or something. So what did you do? We decided to see if animals would help. Animals? Well, there's a big rise in the deployment of what are called service animals, like guide dogs for the blind. There are now dogs for anxious people companion animals for people with um, mental health problems. <laughs> well, I have a gerbil called Max, and he makes me feel good. This is serious. No, I'm being serious. I didn't get Max for, for that reason, but after a hard day here at South Mims, going home to Max and having a chat calms me down. OK, that's the point. So we tested self-help books on people who had animals, just ordinary pets at first. Uh, no, no, wait a minute. I... I... I don't get the link. Well, one member of the study group was very addicted to self-help books and he had a Scotty dog called Tiger. Very cute white dog who was getting just as anxious as his owner. Pets know when you're anxious and sometimes act out that anxiety in strange behaviours or even aggression. <laughs> well, Max hates it when I get angry, yes. Well, there you are then. So we asked this person to read the self-help book to Tiger. To help Tiger get over his anxiety? No, just to see what happened. And what happened? Tiger calmed down. I mean, a lot. The reaction was remarkable. And what about the owner? Suddenly, the owner reframed the self-help book as 
A tiger help book. Okay, uh, perhaps that's just the effect of reading to the dog. I mean, not the content of content of the book itself. I mean, the dog doesn't know what the words mean. We tested that. We replicated the experiment across 30 people with pets, and to half of them read a mixture of fiction and non-fiction as well as magazines, and the other half read specific self-help books like Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway and The Road Less Travelled and How to Win Friends and Influence People, the classics, as well as some modern ones. And? The self-help books were most effective, by a mile. So if I were to read Jump Out of Bed to My Gerbil, we'd all be happier? Well, the research says you might. And then you don't need the companion animal for your anxiety? Well, actually, you become the companion animal for your pet. Uh, okay. Uh, Why should it be humans who need companion animals? Animals get depressed too. But their owners are their companions. Only if the owners act... As if they are companions, not just owners. So you're talking to vets about this, right? We're we're doing a pilot at the Royal Veterinary College over in Potter's Bar to see if we can formulise this as a treatment for depressed pets. Okay, so you've gone from looking at how self-help books don't work, for humans that is, to discover that they work for animals who don't understand the words but respond to something in the sound of the words... And that's what makes them happy. Is that right? That's right. Amazing. Well, it's not something I would ever have thought possible. Well, thank you, Bing, for coming in and talking to us about it. It's been a pleasure. I'm going to start reading your dad's book to Max tonight. (laughs) Could you stop mentioning my dad? Oh, why did he call you Bing, by the way? That's it. But, oh, no, no, Bing, Bing. Well... He's gone. (laughs) Interesting man. I hope you found that fascinating. If you have any self-help books lying around the place, start reading them to your pet and all will be well. Goodbye. (laughs)